Welcome to Goddess of Crypto. Today I have with me the incomparable Erica Gemma. Erica's nickname, her moniker on Instagram and on a Twitter is Bank of Erica. And that is for a reason. Erica is doing incredible things in the crypto space and she was one of the earlier people doing it. The sacred divine feminine is creative, abundant, flowing, receiving, and disruptive. And the new energy of money, including cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and even the metaverse, is all these things too. Welcome to the Goddess of Crypto, a weekly show where women who are already in this powerful space will cover these topics simply, so you can relax into knowing that the future of finance is female. Erica, welcome. I'm super excited to have you on Goddess of Crypto. Thank you for having me. Definitely involved and love all the ladies in crypto. They are all goddesses. I totally agree. All right. So I really want to know your story. How did you come into wanting to, caring about, and being so involved with the future of the new age of money? Yeah. A lot of times people in crypto, there's a saying that I like to say, they come for the Lambo and then they stay for the revolution, right? They come because they see this opportunity to make money and then they learn about the issues that happen in the money system and how uh, the money system is really holding a lot of us down. Now, for me, it was a little bit opposite. I came because I saw some of the issues. I campaigned for Ron Paul when I was younger. So when I was 19, I became a delegate in Washington state for him. And through him and that community of people, I learned what the Federal Reserve was. I learned about just the money supply that were no longer based on gold. And I also learned about Bitcoin. And it was through that like open-minded group of people that showed me that Bitcoin really is a solution to a lot of the money problems that we have. So it was pretty exciting. Um, unfortunately, you know, after Ron Paul lost in 2012, I kind of brain dumped everything. I think that maybe as women, sometimes when we don't want to deal with situations or when you get out of an abusive relationship, your first reaction is to forget about it, right? You just brain dump it. And that's kind of what I did. I found out that we were in an abusive relationship with the state and I forgot about everything. I forgot about Bitcoin. I've always liked aviation. I've always liked airplanes. So I moved from Seattle, which is where I was born and raised to a school called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. And that's a just top aviation school in the world. I have my pilot's license, so very ingrained in like the, I've always liked technical things. Afterwards, I started working for a big bank. So I got into finance and I worked in the aircraft leasing division. Interestingly enough, the CEO at the time was legendary bankster. He did the merger between Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. The next week, you know, Lehman Brothers falls he makes $50 million regardless, right? So just these legendary people on Wall Street that they make money, but a lot of people are losing money, you know, the little guy. And we had a Q&A session for the young new hires. And at the end, you know, I was just racking my brain for a good question. I remembered Bitcoin in that moment. I asked him, what do you think about Bitcoin? Just to ask a good question. And then he and everybody in the room pretty much laughed at me. And I was like, okay, well, it's back time to go back down the rabbit hole. Because when I had first learned about it in 2011, the payment channels, they weren't there. And then so- Same here. It's, yeah. I mean, it's good. Timing is, is very important. So then what? What happened after that? So you said, I'm going to go back down the rabbit hole. 
But I mean, I consider Miami the crypto capital of the world right now. And I consider you kind mm -hmm. of crypto queen of Miami. So that's pretty impressive. How did you get from that moment going down the rabbit hole to where you are right now? So that particular bank sold all their airplanes and I started working for another boutique aircraft leasing company. Now there, it was a smaller company and I was telling all of my colleagues about Bitcoin. And this was 2017 when the big new hot trend in blockchain was security tokens. So what we tried to do was we had like 20 Mitsubishi regional jets on order and we tried to tokenize and essentially crowdfund for the raise of these jets. I warned you that you're going to be talking to a very, very mainstream audience. So like the security token and tokenizing something, I've, I'm guessing is something a lot of our listeners are not going to be so familiar with. So what would you describe that as like in layman's terms? So I would say when a company goes public and they do an IPO, there's a whole entire process behind that. And then individuals can buy into that company, own a portion of it in shares, right? That same concept of an IPO of a, a company going somewhere, being publicly traded on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, and then individuals being able to help fund that company. That similar, very same concept exists in the crypto world where a company can to token can take a portion of their company, tokenize it, meaning offer shares to individuals to be able to invest into that company. And there's a lot of, and I would say that on this side of things, it's a much more technologically savvy way to do what already exists. So we need to understand that in the crypto space, almost everything that's being done, none of it is necessarily new. It's already existing, but it's just done much more efficiently with much less friction. Is such all, all the things I've heard. That's such an incredible point. Yay. I'm so, so glad you yeah. said that because I think that it is that simplification that's going to make such a difference. All right, keep going. Yeah. So it's the, it's the SICOs or sorry, it's the IPOs in the traditional world, STOs and ICOs in this world, but they're essentially the same thing, taking a company and offering part of it to shareholders to be able to buy and fundraise for yourself. So that's what we were trying to do with the airplanes. And so my boss at the time had sent me around to learn officially about the blockchain and what the blockchain could do. And then during my travels, I just, I saw the opportunity. I met a lot of people in the space that I hadn't met beforehand, it was very you know, libertarian focused, but this, these were crypto people that I started to meet that were not necessarily all libertarians like I was used to. And then from there, I started hosting this event called Crypto Mondays in Miami. Crypto Mondays is in, I would say, 180 different cities, 20 different countries, and it's a meetup that happens on Monday. And the first Crypto Mondays that I threw, I got in touch with Lou Kerner and James Haft, who were running it at the time. I think like 40 people showed up to my event, right? And I was like, okay, cool. I mean, here's the community. And then, you know, I just was continually throwing them. There were crypto events that were happening in Miami beforehand, but it was very developer focused and it was very, you know, just very, very technical. And it was maybe max like 12 people. And so I was the first one in the city to really throw large scale events. And I mean, they were good, executed very well. People left feeling like, wow, I learned something. I started hosting panels, just came to the point where, you know, hundreds of people would show up. And this was also 2017. It was the run up. We were going to $20,000. So the interest was really there, but it got such good traction that the mayor had invited us to come uh, host an event at his 
location at the, one of the law firms that he's a partner in. And that one probably, you know, 100, 150 people showed up. It was very, very good and continually just kept growing to the point where I opened up a Bitcoin center in downtown Miami. So we had a 6,000 square foot building. It was very involved with the city. When we opened up, Mayor Francis Suarez came out, did a ribbon cutting ceremony for us. And mind you, Bitcoin is less than $10,000 at this point. The Downtown Development Authority, the Beacon Council, the Miami Beach Chamber of Commerce, the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce, they were all sponsors for the event. We had a lot of local Miami born and bred companies that helped us do the opening. And I think it was like the room was completely packed. I think it was like seven. 700 people showed up and it was a rainy day. So I was worried that people were going to get rained out and they weren't going to come out, but it was completely, completely awesome. He gave us like a declaration officially declaring that the Bitcoin center was open. And we started, I mean, it was like this just home for people to be able to come to. We had all over the walls that was crypto focused and it was really this incubator co-working office and event space. And it was nice. I mean, I'm, eToro was one of my big clients. Crypto.com was one of my big clients. And this was back in the day when people didn't really know about them. But what attracted them was this, you know, very refined community. And what I think what attracted the community and the reason why Miami's been able to grow so much is when people come here from out of town, they were like, wow, I, I've heard it many times before. You guys actually have a real community. You can tell everybody is friends. You know, you're in my chat room and you can see like one of my things I love hearing is, oh, this is my username in the chat room. And then someone's like, oh, this, this is my username. They're like, oh, that's you. So it's just cool. You know, online people able to meet in person. And that's really what matters. I want to just jump in here real quick and say, you know, for you to have done this when you did it is even more important. And it speaks to me to how centric Miami is toward like how crypto friendly it is and why I've gotten to the point of believing that Miami is the crypto capital of the world. Because in 2017, there were a lot of people running around acting like what the reception that you got when you talked to the big high end banker, like they laughed. And there's a lot of people right now in 2022 who are still laughing. They're so like, I don't even want to say this guy's name out loud, but there's a guy I'm in like, I don't know, locked into a Twitter battle with me and about, you know, 300,000 other people, frankly, because he's a finance guy, but he's so all about how, you know, Bitcoin is terrible and it's going to ruin everything. And, and I actually have a friend, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, he's very high end at a big, like at a major, major bank. And when he found out I was doing this stuff, he called me up and said, basically, you're shilling for fascism. That was how he put it. Like he was like this, is, and, and we're both Jewish. And he was like, this is not okay. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, are we even having the same conversation? I couldn't even imagine that we were talking about the same thing because all I see DeFi, crypto, blockchain as is kind of like the love and light part of money, the part of money that's designed to help people not to bring harm, the part of money that's designed to give the power back to the people as opposed to keeping the money in the hands of, you know, a very tiny number of people. And best of all, because, you know, an energy person first and foremost there's no limit to money. We've just told ourselves that there is. And so when you kind of get into like relax into what's possible, there's enough for everybody. There's enough for all the old white guys to be really, really rich and for all the millennials to have money and for all the poor kids to have school lunches and for nobody to have to worry about water in third world countries. We can do all of the yeah. above and it isn't an either or thing. 
So I just wanted to jump in there about that because I think it's really important that Miami has said yes before anybody else did. It's very, very true. Like the abundance is there, right? It's a scarcity mindset versus the abundance mentality. And the problem is though, with the current money system, and this is what makes Bitcoin so great. And the reason why your friend that says this is fascism is completely wrong is because when you look throughout history and you look at every single evil thing that's happened, you know, the slave trade, just like you name it, like the atrocities that have always happened, even wars, right? The reason why we got off the gold standard as the United States was because we were told we need to print a little bit of money, you know, to fund this, to fund ourselves for war to make sure that we're safe. We'll go back to the gold standard, but we just need to do it for a little bit, right? We never went back on the gold standard. We never went back, but that was the reason. That's how they were able to fund it. Now, think about it like this. What makes money good money? There is a list of characteristics that makes money very sound good. One of those characteristics is a limited supply. With the current money system we have today, you know, with counterfeit money being present in every single evil situation that happened, sometimes it is fake dollar bills. Sometimes it is, you know, fake coins, whatever, or, or an IOU that never materializes. The fake money system that we live in today is that we are supposed to be based on gold. And although that money might be validated and they say that it is, you know, legal money and it it might be legal tender, the fact is is that the people at the Federal Reserve are able to print money as much as they want. We can't say anything about it. And then who gets that money first? They get to pass it out to their friends and they get to earmark it to the politicians and the projects that get funded. This is what causes the wealth disparity. The fact that you can create money out of thin air without having to add value to the economy. And the opposite of that is Bitcoin, where you cannot, I mean, there's a limited supply. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin in existence. Less because of scams and such. Bitcoin, I don't think we'll ever see 21 million. You know, I know of a particular scam that burned $10 million in Bitcoin back when Bitcoin was worth about $10,000. So, you know, just do that math that we won't ever even have the 21 million. Yeah, I think it's estimated that maybe a fourth of it is already lost because people lose their private key scams, like sent to the wrong wallet. But there is a limited supply. So it's like, we know if that money is burned because the blockchain is public, it's like, imagine if the Federal Reserve was able to print money and then you could see who they send it to first, who gets it first. That would be completely transparent and you would probably see that it mostly goes to politicians and big corporations. Now, when you look at Bitcoin, First of all, this is why it's proof of work is the validation system, because you have to add work into the economy in order to get newly minted Bitcoins. So it's just this pure money system that's really hard to corrupt. You know, the reason why the world agreed to go on a dollar standard was because we had told them that we are not going to print more dollars unless more gold is found. Now, obviously, we haven't held true to that. The current money system is as of 1971, when we fully got off the gold standard. So we really have the world economy right now running on an unstable base. Uh, So what I've seen since the beginning of time is that everything is cyclical. You know, there are times when nations, they rise and they fall. Money systems rise and fall. The average year of, of the average span of a fiat currency is about, let's say, 30 to 50 years, right? And America's dollar, as we know it today since 1971, is at that 50-year mark. So, you know, history has shown we've been here before, but for whatever reason, you, I, your listeners, we're living in a time where a shift is happening. And we get to choose, you know, what side of history are we going to be on? There is a lot of calamity in the world. And so it's like, 
one thing that's promised when calamity happens is that some people are going to lose everything and some people are going to make it out on top. And we have the ability and the knowledge to decide which side of that we're going to be on. So, so important. So let's talk about women. You're an incredibly well-informed, well-educated, and it feels like energetically, like you have you know, I'll just say like money in your veins. Like it feels like you're very comfortable and feel safe with money. A lot of women don't. And as I talk about very often, there are a lot of women, especially over, you know, women over 50, you know, their mothers and usually like even they were not allowed to access their own money. You know, it was 1974 before there were laws that said you can have your own mortgage, you can have your own credit card, you can have your own bank account without your husband or your father co-signing. So we have this legacy that ironically is just around the same time as the gold-backed standard disappeared, that women until recently were told a lot of no when it came to money. So how do you shift into this place where you feel like there's money running through your veins other than working with me, because that is definitely something I do with people. How do you get there? You know, I always say one thing, ladies love purchasing power, right? And what Bitcoin does is it allows for more purchasing power. What you can buy with a dollar today is not even the same as what you can buy with a dollar six months from now. And to tie it back, you know, to Latin American countries, a lot of people in America, they get into Bitcoin because they want to get rich. But in Latin America, they get into Bitcoin because they don't want to get poor, right? So for one, keeping in mind that it's purchasing power that matters. While dollars are less volatile, they may seem safer because there is no volatility. It is guaranteed that in the last, uh, you know, since coronavirus, that they've printed at least a fourth of the money supply, meaning your dollar has a fourth less from since the beginning of coronavirus. And it's not as apparent, but thinking of currency in absolute terms has definitely helped. And, you know, in terms of like, so me growing up, I definitely grew up, you know, I am first generation American. My parents were immigrants. They moved here because the mountain in the Philippines blew up. I was the first in my family to be born here. First in my family to go to college. I had like a full ride scholarship. And to even until recently, maybe until I was like 28, I, I just turned 30. I had a scarcity mindset and I had to deal with that. And it was like, For me, it was understanding that if I get money, it's meant to flow through me, not come to me, but flow through me. And I found, like, first of all, I realized I had a scarcity mindset that I didn't think that there was enough and acting out of that, you know, acting out of fear really holds you back. So knowing that like the universe or whatever has your back, as long as your intention is to push things through for the bettering of everybody that really helps. I mean, it just gives us so much peace. And I think that's really why women, you know, they're more likely to save or they're more likely to spend money on helping people, right? Is because they see this, there's lack and it's not true. You know, me growing up in a family, I have, I have six siblings, right? So money was tight for us when we were growing up. And so sometimes I do think, oh man, the rug's going to get pulled out from under me. I have to fend for myself. But, you know, over the years, it's just, it's been knowing that, hey, this opportunity is for me. It's not for anybody else. It's for me. And if I take it, 
great. Like only good could come from this because I know this opportunity is for me. If it's not for me, then it will pass on, right? Knowing like there's so many different opportunities that pass up to us. So if one comes to me and it's not a good fit, there's another one right around the corner. You know, in college, so interesting. I applied for so many scholarships in college that these scholarship companies, my tuition was already paid off. My room and board was already paid off. They could not do anything but deposit the money in my bank account, right? It was because I created space for opportunity. It was like I had applied to so many different scholarships, even scholarships that I knew I wasn't eligible for. It was like scholarships for, you know, certain people of color, certain whatever that I actually was technically not eligible for, you know, people in the business school versus this school. But I would just send my send my application out. And a lot of times one of the biggest scholarships that I got, which all of it was like $10,000 directly into my bank account, right? Because I already had scholarship money enough to cover school. I just changed a couple words from some paragraph that I had written before and I won it. And the reason why was because one, nobody else was applying. Right. And then two, I mean, I'm a pretty good writer, but it was the fact that like, that I learned that nobody applies for these things, the money, the help, all of it's out there. But for one, we have to ask, which I feel like sometimes for women is hard. You know, we don't want to ask for help necessarily, but for two, it's like, you need to make yourself open for opportunity and certain things will land in your lap. And you at some point are going to get to pick and choose. I like this one. I don't like this one, but it's just being open to it and welcoming it that I think really makes all the difference. You know, right now I'm in a place in my life where the opportunity is overwhelming, right? It's just, I don't have enough time in the day. There's not enough hours in the day. And now I've had to learn to say no, still learning. Maybe I could use your coaching on this, still <laughs> learning to say no. But I think people sometimes tell me like, Erica, you're really lucky. And I'm like, I always say it's not luck. It is skill. Like I work hard to get here. And yeah, so there's that. Yeah. So, and then also true for women, I hate this mindset. This mindset's really frustrating. So the first time I was the only girl in a classroom, I was 16 years old. I was learning how to fly airplanes. We had a aviation like program at my high school. And I was literally only girl, teacher's a guy. There, I was like one of two minorities in the classroom. And nobody ever didn't want me there, you know? And I feel like there's this whole like mindset where women come into workplaces and they think that they're unwanted. And, and that's absolutely not true. You know, somebody who complains, whether you're a girl or a guy, you're equally not wanted, right? If you are tough to deal with, whether you're a girl or a guy, you're equally not wanted. If you're efficient, if you're smart, if you speak up, if you communicate, got girl or guy, you're equally wanted. There's a sense to me that I love that you just said that. And I want to go back and address that other, the other stuff that you were talking about a minute ago. But there's really a sense that in crypto that women aren't wanted. And my experience, it's more like we're ignored because people don't realize that maybe we learn differently or we approach something differently or we care about different things. So I remember going to a networking event and telling a guy, you know, oh, women didn't have access to money until like 50 years ago. And him just looking at me like, like it was this blank stare. And I could tell it, it wasn't that he didn't care. It was that he had no point of reference for it. And so it's like, you just coming mm -hmm. in and being one of two girls, are you different? Yes. Is somebody going to treat you as different? Maybe, but the stories, you know, that make the movies are the stories about how you would have been hazed to the point where you were almost out of the school and then you would have rallied and come on back in. 
But the truth is actually more, I don't know, subtle and boring than that. And that truth is they're just trying to make their grades and they're just trying to have a good experience for themselves and they have their own fears and their own issues. And it isn't that they Mm -hmm. would, they don't like you. It might be just that they, you know, would ignore you. I feel like the other piece of this for you is kind of being aware that, you know, you did get a lot of opportunity. You did make that opportunity for yourself. When it comes to the boundaries that you set for yourself, the question I always tell clients to put themselves through, especially at a really high level, which I mean, I feel like you've kind of gotten to even at your age, like you're already in that like high level space. And the question becomes, what is the cost of the opportunity? You know, because there's only 24 hours Mm -hmm. in your day. There's only 24 hours in Richard Branson's day, right? So you have to decide, what am I doing with this time? You know, you get to make a certain amount of money and the conversation stops being, how can I make more money and starts being, how can I have more time? Your, your time is the thing that is the most precious, not your money. It's easy mm-hmm. to make more money. And when you get to a certain point, you start to realize that you will not make more time in your day. You just like, we can't. It's 24 hours, seven days, period, the end. And on a spiritual level, there's no such thing as time or space, but we live in the third dimension where those things actually are parameters for us. So the question to be asking always is just, what's the cost of the opportunity? If I do this, Mm -hmm. what won't I be able to turn my attention to? And the bigger that you get, the bigger the projects are that you'll be doing. Do you know Mike Turpin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Mike and I have been friends for like 30 years. We worked together at my first company. And if, for those of you that don't know him, he's like, I mean, I call him the godfather of Bitcoin and that's pretty accurate. And the last time I saw him, he's Mike funded said, a lot. He's opening up a bit angels. Yeah. He has bit angels. And then he has like a lot of different things And he's a, like, he's one of the founding investors in, in, or I guess his group is one of the founding investors in Proppy, for example, which is like doing, you know, real estate mm-hmm. as NFTs and all the cool stuff. But what he talked to me about the last time I saw him was the idea of being like a super advisor so that he's not actually as directly involved, but he's kind of advising more from an overarching standpoint. He's somebody who has gotten to the point where he's just too valuable to get into anything that is lower level than that and can be utilized by so many resources at a higher level that the idea, I've never heard of a super advisor before, but it makes a perfect sense. I see that for you kind of getting to the point where you'll be at a higher level advising people and not kind of diving in at a lower level because you just won't have the bandwidth. And then the question becomes Mm -hmm. like, how many more rainforests can I save with this project than with this one? And then that will also be, you know, stuff that informs your decisions. But I want to just get back. So there, you got a little coaching there from me. I want to just get back to the way that you see, well, actually, I want to talk about Miami for just a minute. Miami was the first city to claim alliance with the city coin. Now there's like four cities in the country that are doing it. And I think there's going to be a lot more behind it. You know, what causes a city to be the first one to say yes to that? Why do you think it's our city that did that? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I tell those people a story all the time. So in the 1920s, when the Great Depression happened, Miami was one of the few cities that did very well during that time. Now, here we are 100 years later, 2020, 
we're in some type of downfall. And I truly think Miami is, it just is, we're one of the cities that is going to continue to do well during this time. Uh, everything is cyclical, right? I would say another thing is, you know, at the blockchain center, myself, Nick Spanos, Scott Spiegel, those are my business partners in opening it. And we had created marketing material back in 2018 that said Miami was the crypto capital of the Americas. And that time it wasn't even true. I didn't coin that phrase. Somebody <laughs> else did. Okay. All right. You know, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think you said crypto capital of the world, but we specifically yeah, okay, said fine. crypto capital of the Americas. Um, and it was just interesting because it really wasn't true. But then I had some professors come down from Canada and they said that their team of researchers, you know, they were researching and they said that Miami is a crypto capital of the Americas. But it really wasn't true. It was that we were just putting out all of this material, all of this SEO, and we called it into existence. This is what I'm talking about, creating opportunity, right? The opportunity was not there, but we created it. And now housing prices have gone up in Miami because all the crypto people are moving here, right? Insane. <laughs> <Which> yes. <laughs> it's a good, yeah. And it's a good problem to have. But at the same time, it's like, I think that this is what it was meant to be. Right. Even the, the place where we had the blockchain center was on Flagler Street. If you know anything about Miami, Flagler Street is the first street in Miami. It from there it goes one south, one north, one east, really one west, right? So that is where coincidentally we had the blockchain center. So there's just a lot of things that I feel like really is the timing. And then, you know, what makes a city the first one? It was that for me, my strategy was I saw that there was a young, vibrant community in the city, people constantly showing up every single time they would, you know, take the train down from West Palm just to meet with the like minds. And for me, the reason why when I started doing events, it was just, I wanted to meet people who thought like me. I wanted to meet my, my tribe, my crowd of people. But then my strategy really was let's involve the local government. So getting the downtown development authority, the beacon council, the mayor's office, getting all those organizations involved when Bitcoin was low, I think that was really instrumental. And then it was also the fact that we would just run education. It was like, come in, free education. You want a wallet, go to this back room, you'll leave with a wallet. It was in English and in Spanish, right? And so there was that like real like guerrilla education that was going on. You know, people could come to a physical location. We had like four ATMs on the wall so people could see, wow, Bitcoin ATMs are real and there's options. And they would just sit next to each other and people could, you know, pick, use whichever one they wanted. Also too, you know, Miami's demographic is interesting because it is very, very Latin here, right? Spanish is the main language and a lot of people are first or second generation Americans. And the reason why is because they saw their home country in Latin America, they saw their home country fall because they're fiat currency failed. So when you look at people here, we understand it from a needs-based perspective. You know, I think the number one, Venezuela is the number one uh, city in the world where Bitcoin is truly adopted. And Miami is also the number one place for Venezuelan refugees to come. So I think it was just that understanding internationally why we need a form of money that's outside of the control of our government-controlled fiat currency. For two, it's the timing. You know, we've been here before. Miami specifically has been here before 100 years ago. We did well. A hundred years later, we're going to do well. And then I'm so thankful that I get to play a part in all of it. So <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's really remarkable. So I know we have to wrap up. I just want you to think about this for a second. What's one thing that you would tell a woman who would like to start her journey into decentralized finance, into cryptocurrency, and is afraid? What's one thing you would suggest to her? 
Okay, I'm going to give you two to close out one of our other topics is women. One of the ways that I learn is I learn by talking to people, right? And that's also why I throw events. A lot of my knowledge comes from having developer friends, understanding what's capable of the technology, looking at the decks of all these different companies and seeing, wow, this is what can be done. So not being afraid when you go to a networking event, you know, when that guy looks, if you're a girl and you feel ignored, especially at a crypto event, mostly it's because the guys are intimidated to talk to you because you're a girl. So understanding that portion that it really is intimidation, not that they don't want you there. And I think, you know, having that mindset that you're not wanted really holds a lot of women back. It hurts me because I've seen my entire career, you know, my college, the ratio of guys to girls was seven to one. And I have never felt not wanted. And I've always felt like being a girl has actually given me benefits and it's because I never saw myself as not wanted. I never saw myself as, oh, these guys look down on me. For one, because I know I can run circles around them in certain ways. You know, women are naturally better communicators. Use that to your benefit. Maybe they're better. Like, I could never sit behind a computer all day like some of my developers can. Never. But I can talk to people in ways that they never could either. So understanding that we do have strengths, weaknesses, balance. And going to crypto events, you know, if you are like me and you learn by talking to people, by hearing, by asking questions, then meet people in person, right? Now, if you're not, and maybe you're a little shy, you don't want to do that. My second tip is there is so much knowledge on YouTube, you know, like here you are adding knowledge, but it's like, there is literally so much knowledge on YouTube. If you think about it, like you're going to take a class and that class is like whatever, you know, 60 hours of work, let's say every two weeks or every month, 60 hours invest time into yourself and just watch things on YouTube. You know, don't listen to music, but you know, take the time, find the research, research the topic that you want, read the articles, do the work, put the work in and make it so the opportunity is available and then make friends. Like for me, it's like a lot of my resources are, I can call this person who is an expert on that topic and they will give me the 411 of how it is. And then I can take that in and I can understand it and regurgitate it to people. So yeah, the number one thing I would say is there's no reason to be afraid. You know, one thing that I learned and I'm thankful that I learned this, you know, very recently was, you know, imposter syndrome. I had never known that existed, but when I learned that it existed, what I learned was that everyone suffers from imposter syndrome. And what does that mean? That means that nobody knows what they're doing, right? Literally Absolutely. nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. Men don't yeah. know what they're doing. Maybe they pretend better than us, right? But they don't know what they're doing. They're figuring it out day by day. And therefore my plan is to figure it out day by day. So don't, don't get intimidated. You know, our brains work. I think there's a statistic that says when you are afraid, your brain works 30% less of its capacity. So the number one thing is just getting rid of that fear. And then knowing that there is abundance out there, there are no limits and we have to do the inner work to understand, like I had to do the inner work to understand that maybe my upbringing taught me that there was scarcity, but that was wrong. Abundance is correct. Yes. I love that. I live by most of those principles and there is, there's imposter syndrome at every level because you get to the mm-hmm. next level and there's always going to be somebody better than you at that level. So yes, uh, just living in a, in a way where you're choosing to be fearless all the time is so important. Erica, thank you so much for joining me here today. I so appreciate it. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Goddess of Crypto, please comment, please like, please subscribe, and most importantly, please share this episode on whatever platform is your favorite with other women so that we can share this information with the whole world and help the whole world see the new age of money. I'll see you next time on Goddess of Crypto. Thank you. Every week, transformational wealth coach Hallie Evelyn leads a conversation that helps to ensure that women everywhere can learn to surf the coming tsunami of the new energy of money. You can find her at goddessofcrypto.me. That's goddessofcrypto.me. Be sure to subscribe to Goddess of Crypto on your favorite platform or watch the show on YouTube. And remember, wealth isn't just your privilege. It's your right.